Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. That was the big chant, the anti-draft, anti-war chant during Vietnam. I mean, I was a kid, but you watch TV, that's the chant. Now, the chant is you've got to go. You've got to go to this website and say, hell no, we won't go. This is This Week in Common Sense for the last full week of December 2019. This podcast is Paul Jacobs' weekend recap of stories that appear on thisiscommonsense.com, where his commentary appears every weekday. Here's Paul Jacob. We have throughout the year, beginning in January, uh, but throughout the year we followed this National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. It was set up by Congress to uh, basically so they could punt the ball. The, the federal courts are looking at draft registration. Uh, women are now in every bit, every combat uh, position. And so if we're going to have military conscription, if we're going to force people into the military, we're going to have to force women into the military along with men. And that means we need to register them for the draft and take away benefits or throw them in prison, do whatever nice things that we do as a society to force this meaningless list of uh, young people who we don't need to call for any military reason. We don't need to call them into service. It's a list that's pretty worthless if we were to need to call anybody into service. And I submit free people will defend a free country. There's never been a need in our history for the draft. There's not going to be a need unless we become a, a, the type of state that that free people won't defend. And in that case, then uh, we probably deserve what we get. Um, but, but we don't need the draft. The list they have, even a former director of selective service says is worthless. Is it's, it's, this program is counterproductive. It makes people think somehow we have some safety valve that we don't have. And of course, conscription is wrong. It's not how free countries should defend themselves. And we ought to embrace the all-volunteer force. And, and of course, this week we talked about uh, legislation, uh, House Resolution 5492, uh, which has just been introduced. Uh, uh, Peter DeFazio, Democrat from Oregon, Rodney Davis, Republican from Illinois, bipartisan. It would end registration. Don't extend it to women. That's silly. We don't need it. The draft, the draft is wrong. Let's have uh, no registration program, no selective service system. And it goes a little further. There are people who did not register for the draft, like me, because they opposed the draft. And they wanted to meet it head on and say, hell no, we won't go. Uh, and I wanted the government to know, I'll, I'll go when I think it's a just war. If I don't think it's a just war, don't count on me. Uh, and so I didn't register for the draft. Others may have just forgotten in the grand scheme of things. It just may have never occurred to them. And they say now that 70% of the registrations are coming not because someone went to the post office or, you know, submitted to registration, that in many cases uh, they're being asked as they fill out some government form or as they're trying to get student aid, they're told you have to register, here's the form. In many cases, 
they're not filling out any form. They don't even know they've registered. I have friends who told me their kids received letters saying, hey, you're registered for the draft, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they never did anything. So this, this program, and of course, young people, they move six zillion times. So, I mean, if you really were serious about we need to send out draft notices, this list is worthless. And you'd be better off to go on to the marketplace and say, hey, anybody got a list of young people? It'd be more accurate than this is. So um, for all these reasons, we, this is a very, very good time. As Ed Hasbrook, a fellow 1980s era draft resistor, uh, wrote a great piece at antiwar.com and, and told people some of the things, and it's, it's linked to in our, in our piece on uh, uh, five days left. Uh, five days left in this this year before this national commission ends its public uh, engagement and listens to you and me about what should happen with the draft. And uh, I, I urge you to go there. It'll take two seconds, but it's uh, it's something actually that that could make a difference. Go there and say no draft. Don't extend draft registration to women no forced national service program, you know, government administered loitering um, for young people, good way to interrupt their, their pursuit of their own dreams and happiness. And as, as we've talked about before, uh, I have a 20 year old, uh, my youngest, and uh, the idea that the government would get in her way uh, in her pursuing her own future makes me furious. And I'm not, uh, you know, I've never liked the draft a whole lot, uh, but come on, get out of people's way. And uh, this, this is complete silliness. So that was, uh, uh, that's kind of part of the way we ended the year. Our actual last script, and I, I keep forgetting we have a couple of days left next week, but, but our last full week of the year, uh, we talked about Michael Moore. And, uh, and this is... Uh, uh, we had a great comment by Pat who said, you know, maybe the best thing is to just not ever talk about this guy again. He'd get what he deserves. And, uh, and of course, Michael Moore, the filmmaker, uh, I think of uh, Bowling for Columbine and Roger and Me and and some of his early stuff. Uh, I don't think he's gotten better with age. But uh, he came out basically before the, the 2016 election and said, look, I've talked to a lot of people uh, who I think are going to vote for Trump and they're going to vote for Trump because they want jobs and they feel like that their, you know, their way of life has been kind of given short shrift policy wise and it hurts and they're, and they're struggling. And, uh, and of course he's from Michigan and Michigan was one key state where Trump won by 10,000 votes, but he made the point that these are not racist. These are not bad people. These are good people. And, um, uh, and, and was very sympathetic and, and talked about, you know, they need to be listened to and, and the Democrats should be paying attention to them. Well, he just came out in an interview Rolling Stone uh, had where he talks about two out of three white men voted for Trump and therefore they are bad people and suggests, and it's you know, when you demonize people, even if it's people of the same skin color as you, uh, and of course, in the interview, he points out that that he and the other white guy sitting next to him are the good, they're the one out of three white guys who are good guys. 
But he says, if you see three white guys, don't, don't count on the one good guy. Cross the street, get on the other side of the street. These three white guys are likely to be two Trump supporters, and that is too dangerous for you to be able to, to withstand. You can't possibly take that kind of risk. And you just, you know, you can't, you couldn't make up stuff like this to make fun of them. If you were, if, if I would have, you know, done some, per, some uh, you know, parody of Michael Moore and pretended he said something this contradictory to what he had said before and this ludicrous, it wouldn't be funny because nobody would believe it. And here it is, he does it. Uh, it just, and, and you know, Pat's right in one sense, but in another sense, it's really important, I think, to realize that some of the people who are famous and who are opinion makers and opinion leaders um, and who are producing movies that are shown in movie theaters to millions of Americans uh, have not got a clue, don't have any consistent, principled political positions, uh, and are full of you know what. And it just is, it's, you know, it's worth, it's worth reminding people of that. And, um, and you know, it's, I, I have to say just personally, um, I just know so many wonderful people who support Donald Trump. I don't know any of them who support him for the reasons, and I'm sure there are some, for the reasons that, uh, oh, I like that he sometimes says things that are hyperbolic, or I, you know, I, I also wanted to ban all Muslims from the, you know, from the country. Uh, they like him because they think our country needs some serious medicine and some, some serious interruption and resistance to the way it has been going. And they think that Donald Trump may be able to provide that. And of course, as we've discussed many, many times, and we will again, I have no doubt, um, the media reaction to Trump, who they once, in essence, heightened uh, and gave you know huge platform to when they wanted him to win the Republican nomination. Now that he got it and is president, oh my goodness, have gone apoplectic. And I think it has created that narrative, whether it's accurate or not. Uh, it certainly looks that way again and again, that he is the disruptor, that he is the outsider. Uh, because all the the deep state, the deep media, the you know whatever else is deep, the political class which is deep in my my neck of the woods here in the Washington D.C. area, um, they all are are anti-Trump, and and it has in essence created that dynamic where uh, I look at impeachment, I look at a lot of things, and I think these there is a segment of this country that feels like they got someone who might make a little difference. And, and I've, I've actually been pleasantly surprised with some of the things he's done. I don't have as much confidence as a lot of them do, but I think that they do have a legitimate, a legitimate complaint to say, hey, you've, you haven't given this guy one second to do anything but fight off attacks and to fight off impeachment and, and impeachment, if not for this, for this and for that. 
Um, and, and in essence, uh, we had a, a, a commentary a week or so ago where someone said, uh, uh, I forget his last name, but he's on, on TV a lot, the Princeton uh, professor, who had talked about how this could, this could undermine uh, our system because impeachment will, won't look very strong after this. Well, um, one, he's about 20 years late because of Bill Clinton, um, but two, yeah, when you use what are considered to be very serious mechanisms, when people call emergencies all the time, when instead of when it's really an emergency, these things lose their meaning. And if that then blows up in your face in a sense, that's kind of your just desserts. Uh, unfortunately, it's not our just desserts. It's not the country's just desserts. Um, and I have friends who will argue that, yes, it is, because they put these bozos in office. But I, I submit to you, what was their alternative? Not to vote, let other people put those bozos into office? To vote for their competitors? In many cases, which didn't exist, or when they did exist, were worse, if, or, or maybe slightly better? Um, we've got problems, in, and of course, we don't always have to figure out who's to blame for every problem. We mainly just have to figure out a solution. But, uh, but we, we have been given choices that, uh, that lead us again and again to have people in office who don't really represent us. And of course, that's at the heart of what we're always talking about at Common Sense. You know, it's interesting. On, on Christmas Day, of course, we, we uh, talked about precious gifts. And I, if that puts in someone's mind that, hey, I have not given enough gifts, there's a few days left in the year, you can go to the website, thisiscommonsense.com, and, uh, and make a contribution. It helps. It's what keeps us, keeps us going. Uh, but, it, you know, the first two days of this week, uh, we had what I think are, are pretty important comments. And uh, I've been kidding lately because we've had, you know, we've, we've had some lighter issues and I've talked about, oh, it's a very light and, and airy week and so on. But, but uh, on Tuesday, we talked about uh, what is the sanctuary movement. And folks out there listening might be thinking the sanctuary movement. We're talking about immigration, but we're not. We're talking about the Second Amendment. And, you know, I think there are a lot of conservatives who don't like sanctuary cities and sanctuary counties. And I believe now California is a, well, I don't believe I know, they're a sanctuary state. And when it comes to enforcing federal immigration rules. Um, but now in my state of Virginia, uh, 90, 100 counties are, are sanctuary counties for the Second Amendment. And they're talking about adding additional uh, legislation now that Democrats control uh, the, the uh, Virginia uh, Assembly. And, and so, you know, we're going we're gonna to see more of this, and we've seen it all over the country, uh, Illinois, other states, Washington State. Uh, a year or so ago, we, we had a commentary where we talked about the counties there where the sheriffs had said, we're not going to enforce the rules that they're trying to force us to enforce. And, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, you, you, federal law supersedes state law. Cities, of course, are creatures of states. And so they, they're chartered by 
the states and state law trumps local law. Um, but when you're asking people to enforce different things, that's now you're asking them to do something more than simply follow the law. And, um, you know, maybe the way to look at this as well as the immigration is to step back and say, how can we have all these laws that all kinds of different people have to enforce? And, and not that they're, sometimes that's what, that's how you have to do it. But, um, but it's worth looking at, you know, if this puts a crimp in some of the enforcement actions at the federal level, at the state level, maybe this is a call not for, you know, we ought to dictate everything from the federal level and not allow any sanctuary cities or states or counties or what have you, but that maybe we need a little bit more decentralized government and maybe we need these decisions made more at the local level. And maybe rural Virginia is a lot more like rural Washington or rural Maine or rural New York than it is urban Virginia and urban New York and urban Washington. And, and so maybe, uh, maybe the laws need to be different in those places. It's, it's part of it is to think about how we develop some respect for each other and some uh, understanding that we can't just force everybody to do what we want them to do. Um, that really is, it's a healthy, it'd be a healthy thing because at the, at the, the kind of impetus of every political uh, action kind of from the state is that we need to force somebody to do something. And, and the, the more we can get along without that, the better. The, uh, the interesting thing is Mondays, uh, which is, is all about income inequality, even though the story had absolutely nothing to do in terms of no mention of income inequality. And I've noticed that so often the, the Washington Post talks about income inequality and everybody in the media does, and it's seeped into the culture more and more. Well, it's income inequality and well, we're having problems because of income inequality. Um, and you know, people are protesting in certain places because of income inequality. And of course, I, my, my take on almost all those protests is that they're not really about income inequality. They're about a lack of freedom which of course is almost always present when you have income inequality. And it's, it's also about a lack of economic freedom. And it, you know, it's not so much, Hey, I saw somebody, you know, my life is grand. I got all the money I need, but I saw that somebody who had twice as much. So I'm protesting. That's not how these protests around the world are developing. Um, instead, it's more like, uh, the guy in Tunisia who set off what has been really, in my view, the only successful uh, revolution, and its its success may may wane and and become non-existent. But for right now, Tunisia uh, is probably one of the more democratic countries uh, in in all of uh, the Middle East, and and um, and it its revolution started because a vendor was so harassed by the government in Tunisia that he set himself on fire. And his plight of being pushed around and denied a chance to earn a decent living to feed his family is what moved people to revolt in that country. And so that's, that's what, what these things are about, not income inequality. 
But I, I flipped it a little bit on the Washington Post because they had a story about the deal that Trump made with the Democrats in Congress to get a space force. And generally, I'm not for us building, you know, I mean, I think we, we spend more than on the military than we should. I think we police the world more than we should. I also happen to think that the Russians and the Chinese are going to be in space in a military way and are in space right now in a military posture and um, and that we're going to have to be too. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. I am opposed to the other part of the deal that the Washington Post loves so much, which was giving 12 weeks of paid family leave uh, to federal employees. And, it, and I'm not against them getting family leave. I hope every employee in the whole country can negotiate family leave. I think it'd be wonderful. In fact, I hope that every employee in the country can negotiate a doubling of their pay and better benefits you know, tomorrow, if not sooner. Um, but I don't think the government ought to mandate it. And I think it's especially interesting that the government mandating it in this case is not noticed by the Washington Post as having anything to do with income inequality. And we mentioned a few things in this uh, commentary. Uh, one is that this benefit that has just been bestowed on federal workers, four out of five workers in the economy don't have. So the people paying for this benefit don't get it. Greater inequality. That the people who are paying for this benefit also pay for the wonderful pension benefits that federal workers have. That only about one in 10, one in 12, uh, one in 10, one in nine workers in the economy have. So all these other workers paying taxes to fund pensions when they don't have a pension themselves, they just have the bill. And of course, um, the top five counties, well, in wealth in this country, uh, in income, are in the Washington area. Six of the top 20, I believe, are in the, uh, I'm sorry, 10 of the top 20 are in the Washington, D.C. area. So this is the wealthiest area in the country. And of course, this is where most federal workers are. And they're getting this big benefit. And nothing, now, if it had been a billionaire instead of a millionaire, everybody would have noticed the difference. But the wealthiest counties in the country just got a huge windfall that's going to be paid for largely by the rest of the country that didn't get the windfall. And yet not one word said about income inequality. And I think the reason is because it's not actually the pulling apart in some unfair way. Income inequality is a new catchphrase to explain why we have to give government more power to set and regulate everything. And of course, the more power we give the government, the more they seem to do things like this, which is to reward their supporters, their, their cronies. And whether it's, you know, if, if it's uh, Republicans in power, the cronies are gonna be slightly different, but there's always some overlapping. And if the Democrats are in power, there's gonna be some of their cronies. But this is, this is uh, real income inequality in the sense that you have some people paying for benefits for others, benefits that the people paying the bill don't get to enjoy. And that's a story we hear everywhere. 
I mean, it's, this is not just one little story. This is kind of the pattern we're seeing. It's what government does. Government sets up winners and losers. Yes, yes. It certainly does. And, and we see it all the time in the economy. Um, and we, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing, uh, I, I think the most obnoxious to me, and I'm a big sports fan, uh, but all the, the stadiums that are paid for by, by taxpayers who may have no interest in sports whatsoever. Why should they be tax, paying taxes? And I think about it and I think, think about how completely nuts football fans or baseball fans or basketball fans or what have you, how nuts they are about the sport. You can't get them to pay for it. Would all these sports, if, if the taxpayer, if someone who didn't like the sport wasn't forced at gunpoint, because that's ultimately what happens if you don't pay your taxes, should they really be forced at gunpoint to pay for something because otherwise it wouldn't exist? I mean, you can kind of argue that opera, you know, the, the wealthy have to be subsidized by the poor so that they can have opera because otherwise opera would be too expensive, I guess, with the amount of uh, patrons it has. Um, and, and we can, oh, we would hate to see opera go. But of course, and I'm not a huge fan of opera and not a fan at all. Uh, I don't want it to go. Some people enjoy it. That's great. They got to pay for it. And the idea that one, it's, it's silly to think that we wouldn't have all the same sports we have. They just would have to pay for it with, with paying customers instead of with some sucker who's forced as a taxpayer to pay for it. Uh, even opera, we might have some less of it. But if we have less of it, it'd be because rich people don't get to force poor people to pay for their entertainment. And it's, it, you know, that those basic fairnesses are not recognized in our society is a huge problem that that the papers like the Washington Post and basically any paper in the country that's always going to argue how their city you know should be spending extra money on this or that when when uh, Washington and the Nationals are world champions um, and I you know I, I was rooting for them to win it took me a few years after they had their uh, Stadium paid for by taxpayers, but here was Washington, D.C., where every fall you hear as they go back to school how they don't have enough books, how through incompetence and lack of money, although I'm convinced it's just incompetence, but through incompetence and lack of money, they just can't get books to kids. They can't get kids in the right school or with the right teacher or whatever it is. They, they can't seem to make ends meet. And then all of a sudden they get a chance for a professional sports team. And the city comes up with $600 million. Just like that to invest in a sports team. And, you know, this, this tells you how the world of big government works. Uh, the billionaires get subsidies, poor people pay. Um, you know, billionaires want to do something in your neighborhood. Then the government comes and says, move. We're going to give this property to them. And, uh, and it's not always just the poor. Sometimes like in Connecticut, uh, uh, New London, Connecticut, and, and uh, that story of eminent domain abuse, eh, they weren't poor people. They were nice middle class people, upper middle class. That's why we heard about it. But they didn't stop them. They lost their homes. And now that's... Uh, a pretty new, no, it's not a pretty new anything because it never got built. 
because they ended up it didn't work out and this is after they destroyed these you know went through all this rigmarole to, to you know wrecking these people's years of their lives uh they managed to take their homes but they didn't manage to build anything but you know the truth is what what ended up in the end the end doesn't justify the means and and again and again we see an economy and and we're told it has to be this way it has to be that government makes these decisions so that we can be rich and powerful and but that's not that's not how we got our wealth it's not how we've gotten you know our our power as a country has come from our wealth and come from our example and i think uh we put our wealth at risk uh with kind of this new socialistic attitude and certainly uh our example as a uh as a a beacon of freedom uh, has has been dimmed quite a bit. We need to change that in this new year. And don't forget the podcast on SoundCloud and Stitcher.